Well, it's uh, great to see you today. Thanks for coming, uh, either here in person or if you're joining us online. Uh, welcome. Uh, we are so glad to be together today. We're going to pick up uh, where we left off last week in Mark chapter 10. So if you've got a Bible, you can turn to Mark chapter 10. Uh, we'll pick up in verse 35 uh, in just a few moments. Uh, and so my name is Brandon. If I, if I haven't introduced myself or we haven't met yet, I'm one of the pastors here at Mercy Hill. And I'm really thankful that you have chosen to join us uh, today. We're really, really glad that you're here. Uh, there might not be any place, maybe even in all of human history, definitely in our current contemporary culture, uh, that is more cutthroat and vicious than a high school lunchroom. Where if you remember, maybe your high school was maybe different from mine, full of caring and loving people, but there's a hierarchy to the tables. You remember that? So there's the cool kids table. Uh, there's the jock table for the jocks that didn't quite make it to the cool kids table. <clears throat> there is a variety of other tables for people with a variety of other interests. It's usually the kind of the creative kids table, the smart kid table. Then there was the table I sat at, which is all the way in the back of the room, ignored by everyone, right? Like the lowest rung. And there seems to be inside of everyone, even though we all deny it, a longing to move up the hierarchy from table to table to table. Maybe you're a better person than me, but I know at my lunch table, I was constantly thinking, if I had a chance to sit at that table over there, I would ditch these jokers in a heartbeat. I am out of here. It's almost like a little microcosm, like a little training center for the rest of life. Some of you have entered the corporate world have found this to be true. You have to scratch and claw, often pushing other people down in order to make your way to the top. Some, even in professions that don't seem that way, even in maybe the teaching and education, there's this desire that you're going to have to take someone else's spot if you're going to move into more authority or power. Often, most of our relationships, whether we like to admit it or not, have this little uh, hint of how we are kind of trying to navigate getting ahead. Good news is it's no different in Jesus' day. It's this mentality or longing to get ahead. This is what we find in Mark chapter 10. We're going to pick it up at verse 35. And James and John, the sons of Zebedee, came up to him and said to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. And he said to them, What do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, Grant us to sit, one at your right hand and one at your left, in your glory. And Jesus said to them, you don't know what you're asking. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink or be baptized with the baptism uh, with, with which I am baptized? And they said to him, we are able. And he said to them, the cup that I drink, you will drink. And the baptism uh, with which I am baptized, you will be baptized. But to sit in my right hand or my left hand, it's not mine to grant. It is for those, uh, it is for, those for whom it has been prepared. And when the ten, the other ten disciples, heard it, they began to be indignant with James and John. And Jesus called them to him and said, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them, but it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So James and John pull Jesus aside. They're like, hey, we, we have a question for you. 
In Matthew's account of this story, he says they brought their mom along. It's like a solid millennial move before millennials even existed, right? So they bring their mom along as power play to try to get something that they want from Jesus. And they ask this question, will you do whatever we ask of you? You've been in this situation before. A friend shows up, gives you a call. Hey, we're friends, right? Friends help each other, right? Would you, would you be willing to help me with something? Of course I'm willing to help you with something, right? I'm moving next Saturday. I'll see you there. You're like, ow, oh! tricked again into helping somebody move. Jesus, with more wisdom and graciousness and perhaps me, just says, well, what do you want, right? I'm not agreeing to anything until you tell me what you want. I, I kind of almost picture Jesus saying this with a laugh, right? Like, all right, this is amusing, guys. Just tell me what it is, right? You brought your mom something serious, right? And so what they ask for is to sit at Jesus' right and left hand. What they're asking for is a place of prominence. Now, the good news here is they say, we want to sit at your right and left hand when you come in your glory. So they have bought in to who Jesus is. They believe what we've been looking at all the way through the, bar, through the book of Mark, that Jesus is the true king. They're convinced. Remember, these are two of the three disciples that were a part of the transfiguration that we talked about several weeks ago. They've seen a little bit of this glory, and they know something amazing is going to happen. That is an amazing act of faith. But the bad news is, the picture we get to hear of them is they're trying to figure out if Jesus is going to come in his kingdom, if there's going to be glory and honor, if it's going to be amazing, how can we position ourselves at the front of the line? How can we uh, obtain positions of prominence? Maybe this is just youthfulness. Most scholars believe James and John are the youngest of the 12 disciples, and you know what it's like to be young. I remember when I was young, I thought I had all the answers. I was the guy I needed to be in the seat next to the guy making decisions because I knew everything. Maybe that's it. Maybe because of their experience of the transfiguration, they think they're big dogs now. Like, oh, we got to see something everyone else didn't get to see. So Jesus favors us in a unique way. And so he's going to be willing to shuffle us up right up to the front of the line. Maybe they really know they got a feeling Peter so got an inside track on this place of prominence. They're like, let's ask first before he has an opportunity to ask. Whatever the reason, Jesus answers them with, again, grace. He just says simply, hey, guys, listen, I don't, I don't think you know what you're asking for. See, my, my glory, my kingdom is going to come with these two things. It's going to be a cup and a baptism. Now, the cup in the Old Testament is used metaphorically in a variety of different ways. Uh, sometimes it's used to talk about judgment. Often it's used to talk about suffering. Sometimes people share a cup together in order to seal or share in their fate together. And then baptism is a, is a form of identifying with someone. And the method we see from John the Baptist is immersing people completely under the water in the Jordan River. Really, the idea that Jesus is driving at here is my, my kingdom's coming through suffering. And if you want to be a part of what my kingdom is going to look like, you're going to be fully immersed in suffering as well. That's what the future is. It's not going to be the penthouse suite. It's not going to be a paid staff. 
I'm not going to have a private chef. It's going to come through a cup and baptism, complete suffering. So he says, can you handle that? And they, again, maybe youthfulness, just say, we can't. And Jesus, knowing more of their futures than they could even possibly understand, says, you're right, you can and you will. In fact, we find out in the book of Acts that James, in this story, is one of the first to be martyred, is killed for his faith. He does experience this cup and this baptism. His brother John, on the other hand, lives a long life, but he ends his long life in exile alone. The only one of the disciples left Can you imagine how isolating that must feel to be the last one left? So they both, Jesus says, you're both going to understand this. You're both going to experience it. But right now, fellas, in this moment, you don't understand it. These positions, he says, aren't mine to grant. Really, I think what he's pointing out here, because this can get confusing. You're like, Jesus is God and God is Jesus. Like, how does this all work? I, I think what he's pointing out here to them is just simply this, like, hey, man, you're not trying to jump in line for this other 10 guys, remember there's a whole story lying here. There's Moses and Abraham. There's David. There are the prophets. At the transfiguration, you saw Moses and Elijah. Remember, this is a much bigger story than just you. Well, that ends that conversation well. Uh, I don't know, it seems like a conversation ender to me. You know what I mean? Like, (laughs) yeah, you don't get it, and if you did get it, you would hate it. So conversation over. Well, the other 10 find out, and Mark tells us they're indignant. I don't know how they found out, but I imagine it went something like this. Hey, James, uh, why is your mom here? (laughs) Right? John, we uh, we saw you guys talking to Jesus by yourselves. What's... uh, What's up with that? You know what I mean? What's going on? And eventually, it's either got to be James or John or their mom who tells the story, right? There's only four people in the conversation. So the other 10 find out, and they get incredibly angry. Maybe they just shared it with Andrew, thinking he wouldn't share it with Peter. I don't know, right? They get incredibly angry, and so Jesus calls them together. Just like, you ever had this as a parent? Fighting is going on. Everyone downstairs right now, right? Sit down. We're going to hash this out. Jesus calls them all together, uh, and then he explains something that is incredibly radical. What he tells them in verses 43 and 44, there's two paths to greatness. He says there's the pathway to greatness, to moving up to the preferred lunchroom table that you're used to. It's the pathway of acquiring power. Most often that pathway is acquiring power from other people. And Jesus says, you see this at play all around you. This is what the Gentiles, what their kings and leaders do. They move into positions of power so that they can lord it over others or so that they can be in charge, so they can get what they want at the expense of their followers. It says, the greatest greatest among you will be the servant, the diagnos. It's where we get the word deacon from. Those who seek to do what is beneficial for others around them, who assume a low position instead of immediately going for the high one, who look to build others up, not their own recognition. 
Those who are willing to do what no one else is willing to do. And then he says greatness is also for those who embrace the identity he uses, slaves. The word there is doulos. Now we're at a disadvantage when we read a text like this because we've grown up in the United States where we had a form of slavery where we kidnapped people and exported them to another country and bought and sold them like property. That's not what Jesus is describing here. The the word here actually means someone in Jesus' day in the first century, often of the same ethnicity, who would sell themselves to pay off a debt to someone for a limited amount of time. And so they would have an amazing debt they couldn't repay, They would find someone who could pay off their debt or perhaps the person they owed the debt to, pledge to work for them for a period of time, and then they would be set free once they paid off their debt. But occasionally, there would be one of those slaves or servants who would love his new life. And they would become what the Bible calls a bond servant, where they would, at the end of their appointed time, choose to remain in the service of their master. It's an amazing act of devotion. It's like, I love it here so much. I want to stay devoted to my master. And that's the picture Jesus is painting of someone who is so in love with their master, Jesus, that they want to stay there devoted. So he says, here's who is going to be great among you. The one who does what nobody else wants to do. The one who serves the one who puts other people first, the one who's not fighting for prominence, the one who's marked by an unbelievable devotion. That's where the greatness comes from. And of course, then we get to verse 45. In Christianity, that sort of attitude or mindset or desire starts at the top. So Jesus then says, for even the Son of Man, We've seen this phrase before. Jesus is describing a character that we met in Daniel chapter 7. The son of man, the one who's going to come beat back evil. He says, even the son of man, this honored position, even me, he says, came not to be served but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. So the reason that Jesus calls his disciples to serve, to look out for the interest of others, to fight for a low position, not for recognition in a high position, he says is because that's who he is. If you want to follow me, this is what it looks like. This is the picture. So Jesus just points out two things about himself, incredibly important. First one is very simple. Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. At the top level of, of the church the top level of our organization, if you will, is not a dominating leader who lords authority over people. Instead, is Jesus, who came not looking or demanding for service, but came in order to serve us. Jesus, Philippians chapter 2, Paul, Paul points out, the one who deserves all allegiance and service came in order to be a servant, to serve people. That Jesus is the model for using his power for the good of others, not capitalizing on other people's power for the good of himself. 
It's the picture we've already gotten in the book of Mark, that Jesus has come healing and listening, teaching and truth-telling, that Jesus has come working miracles for the good of people. As we've gone through the book of Mark, we have never gotten this idea or this picture of Jesus like he's an egomaniac on a power trip. Instead, we get this picture of a servant, that Jesus is the servant king. He's not here to build a base of support in order to overthrow the Roman government. Instead, he is here to do good for others and by others. So we could put this together. Jesus is looking at his disciples, right? It's like among you. This is the way it has to be. We serve. Why? Because I serve. That's the model. So followers of Jesus are learning to say, others come first. Followers of Jesus, apprentices, if you're in the Star Wars Padawans, those of us who have connected our lives to Jesus are following in the example of Jesus and learning how to be a servant, learning how to say, others come first. This is one of the things at Mercy Hill that we talk about as a mark of a disciple. One of the marks we talked about last week with a rich young ruler, right? Disciples say, Jesus is Lord. We saw the rich young ruler was unwilling to say Jesus is Lord and turned down this discipleship invitation. And what we see in this text this week is disciples of Jesus say others come first. We embrace this identity, being willing to do what other people are unwilling to do. Being so devoted to our master, Jesus, Jesus as Lord, that we're willing to serve, give ourselves out for the people around us. Following Jesus means that we're following his example of service. There's no way around it. That if we are serious in our fellowship of Jesus' leadership, that demands the more and more we become like him, the more and more we embrace the identity of a servant. But this can be overwhelming if we don't have the second part of the sentence. Because it would easy, be easy to get it twisted and to think that we have to demonstrate ourselves as a servant in order to be approved before God. When we talk about following the example of Jesus, it can get pretty crushing at times, right? I follow Jesus, therefore I have to be a servant like Jesus. And then what? We find more and more and more in our own hearts and lives, we don't want to be servants. We don't like it. It's hard. It's hard to put other people first. It's hard to do what no one else wants to do. The reason no one else wants to do it is because it's not that great, right? So then how do we do this? How do we, how do we act as servants like Jesus without being totally crushed by the expectation to be like Jesus? That's what Jesus says in the next phrase came not to be served, but to serve, and, and this is so important, to give his life as a ransom for many. That's how we're not crushed by this calling, because Jesus already did something for us. So Jesus came not to be served, but to serve. The second thing is Jesus came not demanding sacrifices, but becoming a sacrifice. He uses this word ransom. Ransom here just means a, a payment to free a captive or a prisoner. 
And Jesus is saying he's making this payment to free someone for many or in the place of or as a substitute or he's doing it in order to accomplish something for someone else. Now, I do want to make this very clear. There's this kind of weird uh, like theological understanding where people take this word ransom and push it way too far and they start to ask this question, well, who does Jesus pay this sort of payment to? It must be Satan and that's nowhere in the scripture, all right? And so before your like, brain like chases down something crazy, I just want to make sure you know that that is not true and not found in the scripture. Instead, the idea here of ransom is what Jesus has been talking about several times already in the past couple chapters in the book of Mark. So several weeks ago, we saw him say that the Son of Man was going to be delivered over to the religious leaders, that he was going to suffer, but he was going to rise again. You remember that? Well, guess what? Since then, although we haven't covered every one, he said that three more, or two more times, a total of three times, including just right before uh, in chapter 9. Here's what Jesus is saying. He's connecting the dots for his disciples. You've heard me talk about my suffering. You've heard me talk about my death. You've heard me talk about my resurrection. Now let me clean this up for you. That is going to be for you. That is going to be me paying a ransom or the debt you owe because of your sin for you in your place. That the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve. And the way that I am going to, Jesus is saying, serve you best best is through my own death. And that ransom is going to be for many. So many people are going to be freed from captivity to sin because of the work that Jesus does on the cross. This is such an important piece of the puzzle Because often we jump to serving like Jesus without remembering or realizing or resting in the fact that we first are a people who needed Jesus to serve us. That our great need was our own sinfulness, our own willful disobedience against God. That that need had produced a debt that we could never repay to God a hole that we can never climb out of, but that Jesus, by his death, is paying the full penalty of sin for you and for me. That what we are owed because of our sinfulness is death. But because of what Jesus did, we are free from that. And when we embrace that, when we know that, when we understand that, that Jesus didn't first come demanding sacrifice from us like a pagan God would demand a sacrifice in order to send the rain. But instead, Jesus came first and foremost to be a sacrifice for us in our place. Then that gives us the fuel and the foundation we need in order to serve like Jesus. Without that piece of the puzzle, this is crushing. Can you imagine? You're a follower of Jesus, so you must be like Jesus in every way. I can't, I can't think of something that would be more crushing or demanding. I mean, you think it's rough because your older brother was awesome and wicked smart, right? Like, I can't li- live up to that sort of expectation. 
Imagine if it was Jesus. But Jesus wants his disciples to know, he wants you to know. This starts with accepting a gift. This starts with a sacrifice being paid for you. This starts with Jesus serving you. And then out of that, we move to serving others. So followers of Jesus embrace sacrifice because Jesus sacrificed himself for us first and foremost. You cannot serve and sacrifice without the gospel, guys. We want you to know here at Mercy Hill, we're not asking you to do that. If your service and sacrifice is in order to impress someone or impress God, it will wear you down and push you further and further away from the heart of Jesus. If your service and sacrifice is motivated by the good news that Jesus sacrificed himself for you first, that you've already been accepted by God, that you've already been forgiven, there's nothing else for you to prove or earn, then you are going to serve and sacrifice with joy motivated by unbelievable love. That's the way it works. Son of man came not to be served but to serve. It's the example of Jesus that we want to follow and to give his life as a ransom for many. That's the sacrifice or the service of Jesus that we deeply need. So, Maybe today, uh, you've never heard that sort of message before. Maybe today you came, you're watching online, and you, you thought this whole Christianity thing was about the sort of service that you could supply to God. And so let's just slow down and let me just say to you today, there's great news. There is unbelievable, joy-filled news Christianity is not hopping from lunch table to lunch table until you finally end up at God's lunch table. And he's like, I'm so glad you finally made it here. Now we can be friends. Christianity is Jesus leaving the cool kid lunch table and going all the way to the other end of the lunchroom for you. It is that Jesus came to sacrifice himself for you in your place so that you could be right to God. You don't have to earn it. You don't have to work your way up to it. And maybe today is the kind of, that's the kind of freeing, life-giving news that you needed to hear. And so we would just invite you, come to know Jesus. Place your faith in or trust your life to this sort of servant king who doesn't use his power to demand more of you, but lays down his life to save you. Secondly, maybe some of us here today uh, are believers, we're followers of Jesus. And I would just encourage you, we should think through this lens in the life of our community. We should, as followers of Jesus, latch on to the gospel. We should, as people who maybe belong to Mercy Hill, latch on to the gospel. We should be filled up at church. We should sing loud. We should be filled with hope and joy when we open the word together. 
And we also should be asking the question, how can I serve the people around me? How can I be the type of person who sacrifices, gives, loves, puts other people first? I believe it'd be an incredibly compelling mark of our community if we were the type of people who together as a church consistently put other people first, wanted to give, wanted to sacrifice. Not, not because we're trying to make up for something we've done, but because we see that example in Jesus and we've experienced the goodness of someone serving us in the gospel and we want to share that with other people. So it be an important question for us to ask today. In my relationships, am I pressing for an advantage or am I putting others first? In my relationships, am I pressing for an advantage with my wife, with my boss, with my coworkers, with other people in my church, my neighbors, or am I looking to put other people first? Then finally, I want us to think through the implications for mission. Uh, so here at Mercy Hill, we've kind of banked this whole thing on this kind of crazy idea. That what we need in order to impact our community is not a better marketing program. And that what we really need is not better music on a Sunday morning. And what we really need is not better preaching, although I'm sure right now some of you are like, it would be great, though, if we could just upgrade. <laughs> that we don't need a finer-tuned show, that what we need in order to impact our community for the sake of the gospel is more and more people who are living like this. That what our community needs is you. How compelling would it be If your neighbors knew that it's those followers of Jesus three houses down that were the first to serve, how many opportunities will we get to share the gospel, the truth that Jesus is a ransom for many with people if we were a servant to many? The key to growing our church, if you want to phrase it that way, or the key to your neighbors knowing Jesus, the key to engaging our community, however, whatever churchy word you want to like phrase, you want to use there, the key is just us together as a community living on mission, being willing to serve our neighbors and our friends and our coworkers. So we ask the question, where am I pressing for an advantage? I think then this third question would be this. Who am I serving who is far from God? Who am I giving my life to, my time to, my resources for who's far from God? And I think if we all just had one or two people in that category, if we're all just willing to engage in that way, and wouldn't it make an incredible difference in our community? So, quick recap. First question. Do you need to know Jesus, who isn't demanding a sacrifice from you, but if first and foremost 
is a sacrifice for you in your place. Second question. In your and my network of relationships, am I pressing for my own advantage or am I looking to put other people first? Third question. Are there one or two people in my life who are far from God that I can intentionally serve in the way that Jesus would serve them? 